Last week, for those of you who weren't here, we started a new sort of summer series in Judges. Dom kind of gave us an introduction into the theme as a whole, um, and I've pinched one of his slides. Um, Over the next couple of weeks, we'll look at Gideon and then Samson, um, these different judges um, that God has used. And there's this cycle that appears again and again and again in the book of Judges. So um, I pinched Dom's slide that the people sin. God judges whether that's raising up another army. Then they cry out for help, and then God delivers them. And this cycle, if you Google it, there's lots of different ways people phrase it slightly differently, but it's something we can relate to in our own lives, that that is very much like our cycle of faith, that we go through periods of God's deliverance, and then we go proud or we forget what it is to experience God's deliverance, and then we fall into sin, and then we cry out, and that cycle continues for us, and I hope that we can learn something today from God's calling of Gideon. And uh, I cut out the first bit of chapter 8, but just to give a bit of a recap as we're kind of jumping in as to what's happened in this cycle, the people have turned to idols, and we often kind of, that, that's the point in the cycle where you're like, well, why, why doesn't it stop now? Why does that keep happening and the whole, whole process keep repeating? But I always think it's a bit like a scene in the original kind of mummy film, that's mummy like zombie about to eat you, not like Mother's Day. And... There's a bit where some, someone's about to be killed and, and he holds up a crucifix and he hopes that that will you know, stop the zombie slash mummy. And when that doesn't work, he holds up a Star of David. And when that doesn't work up, he holds up a crescent moon. And idolatry is a bit like that. These people have started off loving God, but when God hasn't pulled through, they've gone to the next thing. Or they need a backup, they need something else. When they don't have comfort, when they don't have security, when they think God hasn't followed through, They need to turn to something else, and that's what we're going to look at. We'll also see a lot of Gideon's doubt in this passage. And I want us to see that those two things aren't two separate battles, because doubt is what we do when we think God wouldn't pull through, and idolatry is what we do when we think God isn't going to pull through. So these two battles between idolatry and doubt are one and the same for them, and it's one and the same for us. But um, we'll look at a couple different things, but firstly, we'll see a very fearful leader, so Verses 11 and 12. Uh, Look with me at verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under Terebim at Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Azarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. It's quite an odd scene to start with. I always feel uh, a little bit nervous talking about farming with you in the room in case he corrects me. But the normal practice that they would have used is if you can ever get uh, nature to do some work for you without any heavy machinery, that can be a big help. So what they would have done is gone into a field and would have thrown the wheat into the air, the idea being the wind would blow away the lighter chaff and you'd be left with the crop that you wanted. But because the people have gone against God, God's brought up the Midianites and the Midianites are terrorizing them. So it's not safe to do that. So instead, we meet Gideon hiding in a wine press where you're meant to tread grapes, where there isn't any breeze and it's probably taking him much longer to sort through the wheat, fearful of the people around him. And it's a particular kind of terror they're feeling. It's a bit like the classic school bully. They don't steal all your stuff at once. 
They'll wait for you to buy your lunch and then steal your dessert and then do the same the next day and then do the same the next day. And that is what they have experienced. They grow the crops, they look after them, they tend for them, and then the Midianites will come and steal them. And this has gone on for seven years now. And so they live in constant fear. Gideon's now hiding from the security his idols were meant to have brought him. This is meant to have been, the idols were meant to be the backup, but now that's the very thing that's brought the Midianites to their door. And he's fearful and afraid. It's not what we would expect, maybe from a leader. And one of the things to say generally with judges is that we don't, in Gideon or in any of them, necessarily see role models, but we do see reflections of ourselves. These are real people. There's a bit of a mixed bag. And so while we're not commending these things, we do often see something of ourselves in them. Look with me, verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Angel of the Lord sounds a grand title, but to Gideon at this point, all he sees is a man. Um, We know from elsewhere in Scripture when that term is used, it's used of fancy name is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, that is Jesus before his incarnation, so Jesus appearing in the Old Testament. But what Gideon sees is a man giving him a really prestigious military title. And it couldn't be more inappropriate. As he's hiding, cowering away from the Midianites to say mighty man of valor. There's definitely a bit of sarcasm there as he's hiding but it's also prophetic. It's what he will become. But it's important we understand how this is prophetic for him. You see, if this was a Hollywood movie, it's usually at this point Gideon would get bitten by a radioactive spider. And then he'd suddenly bulk up. He'd become this great hero and this leader of his people. But that's not what happens. Or he'd be the the diamond in the rough, the talent no one else has spotted. And at this point, the coach sees him And the talent can be utilized. But that's not what's happening here. He's not a diamond in the rough. He doesn't feel like this mighty man of valor belongs to him. Um, Over the last couple of years, I've tried to do a little bit of gardening. There's a big patch of mud. And last year, I got flower bombs from like middle of Lidl which was meant to be seeds with soil, so you didn't have to do anything. Um, they weren't very explosive, because you, <laughs> you wait six weeks to find out the frost killed them the day after. And then this year, I was, you know, you, you've got those kind of relatives that have bumper crops of things, and I was given some bulbs, and lots of other people I know were given the same bulbs, and none of mine have grown again. Um, until last week I was told that I put them in the right way round. I didn't know there was a right way round, and I thought, well, I've put them in randomly. I'd at least hope one of them went in the right way round, but still this pile of mud. But at the other end of the garden, there's loads of lovely flowers that have just started growing that I didn't plant. Gideon's as good a military leader as I am a gardener. It is in spite of him that God is going to use him, and God is using him very deliberately to show his strength. It's a bit like the son of a very entrepreneurial family who's given a job in the business because he's the son, but the the suit doesn't fit and maybe the abilities aren't there. And it might be worth noting at this point, there's something in here that contradicts a bit of something that can go around in Christian circles that if if you just sit there and have enough faith, 
that then God will do mighty things. And the only reason he isn't is because you're not in this kind of perfect state of zen and relaxation or of ultra faith and trust. And we see this just isn't true for Gideon here. So Gideon's going to have three questions uh, for the angel of the Lord. Firstly, then, he's going to doubt God's goodness. Verse 13, if you look with me. Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that the fathers have recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. In Judges, we don't see role models, but we do see reflections of ourselves. And it's probably the kind of question we're very familiar with asking. If God's with us, why am I in the circumstances that I'm in? Why am I in the difficulties and the suffering and the pain that's all around me. But there's something very specific about Gideon's question that makes it a bit less generic. And it's that bit about, did the Lord not bring us up out of Egypt? Now, had we read, if you've got it in your Bible, look up to verse 8. It says that just before Gideon, the people have cried out, a prophet is going to appear. And a a prophet before Gideon, a, a judge is going to appear, a prophet before Gideon says about the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And Gideon here is throwing those words back at the angel of the Lord. He's saying, well, where is it? You've you've promised this deliverance. I don't see it. He isn't convinced. And then that last bit is actually quite a toxic response from Gideon. But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. It's not just not quite right, it's not just a truth he doesn't quite believe, but it's actually the opposite. It is the people who have forsaken God that has brought the Midianites to the door. It's the people who have said, we will go our own way, we will have our own backups. Our hearts have been turned to other things. They've got rid of God and then when everything's gone wrong, they've turned around to God and said, this is your fault. You've left us when actually it's the people who've been walking away from God. The judges are far more a rogues gallery before they're ever a hall of fame. This is like the serial adulterer who's always suspecting their spouse of being home five minutes later. That The people have gone after other gods and yet when it comes to God will accuse him of not being faithful. And it certainly can feel like that when oppression is all around. And I'm sure at different points we can really relate to what Gideon is thinking. But we mistake thinking that suffering and oppression must mean God has forgotten us. So firstly then, Gideon is doubting God's goodness. And the reason I said at the start that idolatry and goodness, it's it's the one fight, is because in Genesis, when Eve is told, did God really say... That comment is both an attack on God's goodness, but also introducing doubt that both the things come at the same time, that he's doubting God's goodness, that he isn't just someone who'll leave and forsake them. So Gideon's second question, look with me at verse 14. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. And he said to him, 
Please, Lord, how can I go and save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest of Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Here we see Gideon doubting correctly his own strength and ability. Whether or not being the least in my father's house is a bit of an exaggeration, a bit like Elijah saying, I'm the only faithful one left, and then God says, well, actually, I've got thousands of others. But he recognizes that this title, this man of valor, this judge that he's going to become doesn't, doesn't fit. The robes don't fit. I don't know how much of a royalist you are. I think it can be fairly neutral in that my personal opinions and what I sing at a football match are totally different, so I kind of play both sides. But there's one camera angle you don't get of the coronation, and that's the king's eye view. In that moment, what, what is he actually, like, actually thinking? Like, does he think, no, 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 yeah. Yeah, you, you are all my subjects. Like, does he believe the hype? Because the robe fits, it's tailor-made. The crown fits however long it takes to put on. And here Gideon has legitimate imposter syndrome. He knows the shoe doesn't fit. He knows he is the weakest. He knows it's something he can't do on his own. Again, this isn't the Hollywood story where suddenly he believes in himself, has his own strength and might, and then suddenly delivers them out of his own strength. God is very deliberately using the weak things of the world to show his own strength. Two things he's reassured with in this is, did I not send you? And I will be with you. Doesn't that sound a bit like the Great Commission? (laughs) That the assurance isn't that they will get stronger and mightier in the world's eyes, that they'll suddenly become brilliant at speaking about Jesus or that persecution won't come, but the comfort comes in the one who sent them and the one who's with them. Their weaknesses here are not disappearing as, um, as Gideon's being sent by God. So he rightly doubts his own strength. We don't need to pretend to be more than we are for God to use us. We don't need to wait until we're in this more spiritually mature state that always seems to be just beyond us for God to use us. So Gideon rightly doubts his own strength. And then his third question, look with me, so verse 17 to 24, is he still doubting in need of a sign? Up to this point, Gideon has only seen the angel of the Lord as a man. And so he asks for a sign. And then he goes, gets the sacrifices, there's fire, and the angel of the Lord vanishes before him. He realizes what happens. And these signs are given not because Gideon is entitled to tell the angel of the Lord what to do, but because God is gracious. That God sees someone who's weak and scared and is gracious and chooses to show him something to reassure him. Again, if this was the Hollywood version, you'd have your sign, that would be your moment just before the final act where the grand finish happens, but that's not what happens here. He's going to need more signs, and we'll see that next week as well, that it's not going to magically reassure him of everything. And yet God is good to give him a sign, even when he doesn't necessarily need it. So lots of questions of doubt. And then we see in verse 25 to 27, his doubt whilst trusting. Uh, Look with me at verse 27. 
So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord has told him. That's getting rid of the altar. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. One of the problems when I put notes together is I have no idea, I don't put any citations in, so I have no idea where any comments come from. So I feel like I'm always plagiarizing someone. But somewhere in my notes it had, and it's clearly someone else that said it, obedience is essential, heroism is optional. That Gideon's trusting and Gideon's faith in following out this command to get rid of the idols when his life is at threat for doing so is still done with doubt. It's still a mixed bag. One of my favorite verses in the Gospels is when someone comes to Jesus and says, I believe, help my unbelief. Again, it's not that we get to this magical meditative state where everything about following God becomes easy, but it's always a bit of a mixed bag. Even as we're trusting, we're doubting. And yet, Gideon still goes through with it, even though he's afraid of the consequences that he doesn't want to do out in the open. Maybe he hopes he'll get away with it, and yet he's still able to follow through. It would be much better for Gideon if he could do it in the day and and do it in front of everyone, but that's so often not our experience, is it? Where there are times when we need to obey, but we'd rather not do it so publicly for fear of hostility. Gideon's fear here is real, as we're about to see, and yet he still follows through on what God has done. Because... The real enemy was the hearts that had been turned towards these idols, not the Midianites. And so that's what needed to be dealt with. And then look with me, verse 30, uh, 28 to 32. The idols are now doubted. Um, look with me, verse 29. Gideon, son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring your son that he may die. For he has broken down the altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to them all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is God's, then let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. If Baal's altar has been broken down, then Baal can fix it. That's basically what's being said. And here we see an interesting parallel between what God is going to do in the next chapters where it's going to be in spite of his people and done in such a way that no one is going to give Gideon the credit. And yet he's doing the opposite here. Okay, if your idol is there, then by your own might, do it. If you're going to rebuild the altar, it's going to be because you want to, not because Baal's at work. And it's not to diminish the sort of demonic element of these things, but just simply to say that Well, let's see what the idol can do. The idol is mute. Um, It's man's work done man's way. It's what everyone did, what was right in their own eyes. And the danger of the idol is not in the wood or the metal it's made of, but in the trust and the hope that's put in it. While we might not have idols made of wood and metal, our hearts still turn. And yet here when the idol is examined... Will you contend for Baal? Can it look after itself? Well, no, it can't. Gideon is emboldened, and then so look with me, verse 33. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and crossed the Jordan and encamped on the valley of Jezreel. 
But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet. And all the Azarites were called out to follow him, and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called to follow him. And he sent messengers to Ashrai, Zebulun, and Nabalim, and they went to meet him. Now the idol has been doubted, here's finally Gideon's public rallying cry. That he feels able to, in the trumpet and in the open, do the call to war. To gather an army from the different tribes, even although he is the weakest, and all these kind of things. To build up, to go and defend his people. And if this was the Christian testimony, then this would be we wouldn't have verse 36 to verse 40. If this was the Christian test me, it would be, I had this problem, I came to Christ, and then I don't. But even after he's done the public declaration, even after he's got over his fears, doubt creeps back in. Verse 36 to 40, we see more doubt and more signs. Um, one of the things that as I work in a school can often happen is sometimes pupils at the end of the lesson might want to play rock, paper, scissors with each other. I can always tell you the first words that are going to come out of the person's mouth, whoever loses the game of rock, paper, scissors. They're always then going to say, best of three. And I try and explain to them that actually you're better to play it again because the mathematical chances are now still less for you and you're better just to do another one or call it a practice, but they don't seem to listen. Um, but this is Gideon going best of three. He's had a miraculous sign, he's believed it, and now he needs another. Gideon's not a model follower, but he is an actual follower of God. And doubt is not a virtuous thing to be encouraged, but it is a reality, and it's crept back in. And so he does one miracle with the fleece one way round. I think he hopes it won't happen. I think that's why he's asking for the sign. He's asking for the ridiculous in the hope that then he doesn't have to go through with it. And so he asked for the opposite in case, well, I don't know, maybe there's a, a leak in the roof or something and, and that's the reason it's only damp until he has no doubt of anything. And these signs given to Gideon may be a one-off, but our doubt surely isn't. And I want you to see something of God's patience here. He doesn't just dismiss Gideon when he's cowering and fearful. He doesn't dismiss him when he doubts. He doesn't dismiss him when he's accused of abandoning his people. But he patiently, step by step, is calling Gideon out into what he would have him do. And even as there is more doubt and more signs, and we'll see more of that next week as well, God is still patient in drawing out his people. It's not under Gideon's strength, so he doesn't have to have this perfect obedience that happens all the time. But God is still working with them and still working through those kind of doubts. And that is true for us today. And um, The fight against idolatry and the fight against doubts is the same fight. It's what we do when we think God wouldn't pull through and that's not a one-off thing. It's not a one-switch. Now I've seen this thing, now everything's perfect. It's a struggle. There's relapse and doubt and hesitation. And then we think we've got over it and then we haven't. And yet God is not put off by that. God is faithful to pursue us, to love us, to continue to care for us, even when we doubt his goodness, when we doubt that he's 
even for us or with us, when we accuse him of abandoning us, he keeps going through and he won't give up on us. Let's pray.